Welcome to the Mini Break Podcast, your daily roundup of the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, April 12th, and I am your host, Max Rothman, and we've got some great results from Houston and Marrakech to break down for you, and you know, there, there's a lot of clay court tennis coming up, and we're excited to break it down for the remainder of the next couple months, and so of course, I had to bring back my doubles partner, partner in crime, and my fellow national champ. Alexander Scott Gruskin, what's going on, man? Well, those words ring particularly hollow today, Max Rothman, as it is the first day of the USTA Tennis on Campus Club Tennis National Finals in Surprise, Arizona this year, which is where we played my freshman year. So, of course, I'm feeling a bit nostalgic. Crazy that our fellow Wolverines, who we have to give love to, they lost today to Georgia College, who were friends of ours, but... uh, Rough performance for our boys still. You know, we missed that event. Shout out to all the college kids playing that because it is such a fun experience. And to any player who is thinking, you know, I want to go to a good school, but I don't know if I'm going to be good enough to play on that college team. Don't write off the club tennis uh, option because, as you guys can see, I made a lifelong friend and future podcast partner and my doubles partner and partner in crime, Maxwell Labauer-Rothman. Exactly. And, you know, we, we discussed whether our, our national title was, you know, or excuse me, we discussed whether this podcast was contingent on us winning that national title. And uh, I think we both agreed that, that it was. So, uh, you know, we're not saying you necessarily can become podcasters uh, because you probably have to win a national title for that to happen. Uh, but cool also to see, you know, the USTA posting on Instagram and Twitter about it. You know, really, really highlighting the the club tennis side of things. And on that topic, too, I want to give a shout out to Alex, who did an awesome interview uh, with World Team World Team Tennis CEO and kind of just Carlos Silva, excuse me, and and went into the depths of, you know, the changes that they're going to make in their CBS and. Uh, it, it was a, re- a really good interview, so definitely go check that out. And furthermore, make sure to comment, rate, subscribe. This is the last two or three days. You've got the weekend to leave a five-star review. Give us your you know, Instagram, your Twitter, your email, those handles, uh, and we will be choosing a winner on Sunday. Uh, so make sure to tune in also to Monday's mini break so you can find out if you are the winner of the Cracked Rackets gear. Can I give one more quick plug that I think will set the scene for today's action? Sure. As you know, this week I got back on the Great Shot podcast, and while I wasn't with you, I did have a wonderful guest in New York Times writer and Racket Magazine contributor, tennis Twitter provocateur Ben Rothenberg. He came on. We talked about the next-gen guys at the quarter pole mark of the season, how they've looked, who's climbed the rankings, who's fallen off a bit, what we should expect moving forward. Obviously, we saw today in Marrakesh a couple next-gen guys have some, or at least two of them have a particularly interesting battle, so I think that conversation holds up particularly well so if you have some time this weekend you're getting groceries whatever definitely go give that a listen as well well that is a good way to transition us into our match play for the week and uh, I know you didn't listen to my mini break with Mr. Tokoviak because I did plug that pod as well so no I uh, did listen I just wanted to plug <laughs> it I kidding. thought it was a good way to transition of I'm course just giving, I always I'm you shit. no I, I am always <laughs> I always listen to you yeah, I know. Well, that's that's debatable. Unless you say uh, serve down the T on the or serve out wide on the ad. Uh, no, that's not true. If you say serve body hard, because I'm like Max, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the reason we lost our freshman <laughs> and sophomore year. Uh, but but let's get into the tennis. So we we've got two ATP 250s that you know may, 
it's kind of debatable that we could even consider them 250s with some of the level of play, and and that was something that uh, Jamie and I and also Stokoyak were like, you know. Counterpoint. Oh, I see. I, Has it really <laughs> been that good? No, I'm saying it's debatable that it's it should be even considered a 250. Oh, you're saying a challenger? <laughs> yeah, it's, the, the level of play it hasn't necessarily been bad, but – some of the losses have, have been bad. So let's let's start with Marrakech because probably the biggest storyline of the last two days has come from Marrakech. And, of course, we are talking about the Alexander Zverev and John – how do you say his name? I, I've heard many people pronounce it Munar. How do you pronounce his first name? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and, and give a little ATP listen. Joma. Joma Munar. So that, that's the ATP pronunciation um, on their website. I, I love that they can we get uh, Westoff to play maybe the clip. Yeah, Westoff, please hit us with the uh, ATP sound. Jauma Munar. So Jauma Munar wins this match seven six two six six three, and you know this was a match that honestly I think he deserved to win. I don't think this was you know Zverev giving him anything. I I think Munar played an amazing match. Uh, looking at some of the stats from it. You know, Zverev actually served pretty well, served 68% on his first serves. He was only winning 59% of those first serves. And, you know, Munar not serving fantastic, only 56% of his first serves. But the thing that I saw from Munar here was his ability to take defense to offense. If you if you're if you watch any of the highlights or the match at all, you could barely see him sometimes. The camera couldn't even catch him. He was so far back. But then the next thing you knew, he was stepping in and pushing Zverev around. Uh, and I really think that was the the big difference for, for Munar in this match. There are a couple of things I want to say before I get to this match specifically. One, you look at the quality of clay in Marrakesh compared to some of the stuff at Houston. I swear <laughs> to God, it looks like they're playing on dirt in Houston. Like, it looks like it hasn't rained in three months that they just kind of ground up a parking lot and were like, here, this is sort of clay. It, compared to, like, the well-watered, beautifully red clay of Marrakesh, you can tell the guys are sliding. Or at least, maybe this is just me being stupid, but it seems like the guys are sliding a little bit more comfortably in Marrakesh. Some of the guys look afraid to slide in Houston. I think that's played a lot to some of the interesting results we've seen there, particularly from the Americans. Um, the other thing I want to say, and again, this gets back to the Rothenberg point, we talked about just how many young guys there are who are talented players, and this match is a testament to that. You look at Munar another twenty-one-year-old. Yeah, and as you mentioned, he did a lot of things well. He held Zverev to only 45% on the second serve. Now, Zverev tossed in seven double faults, and, and I think one of the themes of this match that that stat reflects, he was just so impatient. He really, you know, it seemed too often was trying to gun it. Another thing that was shock, or just you have to get used to again on clay, drop shots aren't necessarily hit out of the blue. They're meant to misfoot your opponents. When Munar, as you mentioned, is 30 feet behind the baseline, a drop shot, it, it, when well-timed, when well-placed, can really throw him off balance. But this gets back to the impatience. I think Zverev did it way too often. I think Munar was solid. You say he deserved Oh, I'm not win. sure about that. I think he, he placed a lot of really smart drop shots. And then on the clay, the, how far back he was, I, I think he, he was pretty good about it. Yeah, but at the same time, it was just, I don't know. I, I just thought he was, it speaks to, he was pulling the trigger too soon. He wanted to end points. He wasn't willing to physically really grind out this match. Which is what you have to do when you're playing someone as solid and as so uh, proficient at changing directions as Munar was. I didn't think Munar hit a particularly heavy ball in this match. You talk about him deserving. He certainly didn't miss. You know, he put himself in a position to be 
competitive at all times, but I just think Zverev, it's not that he played a bad match. It's just when Munar's playing as well defensively as he is, he had to be a little bit more patient. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I want to disagree. Like, I think Munar at a lot of times in this match was able to, you know, like I said, go from defense to offense and push Zverev around. And, and I, you know, after watching this, and this is a hot take, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you, you know, kind of debate me on this. I really, I mean, maybe this is just this match, but I didn't feel like Zverev showcased that he's a clay quarter. Like, I, uh. I after watching him on the hard court the last couple weeks, I mean, maybe he needs to kind of get into the groove, but he didn't look like he had his clay court game out. I mean, he does need to get into the groove, but that second set, that 6-2 set for Zverev, everything was working. He can misfoot you so easily on the clay, and it's not even getting you out of position, but just when you're misfooted on a surface where you don't have that hard stick, like on hard court, it's tough to recover, and just he hits a ball that's so big. Now, he played a little bit too passively in this match at times but as right, well. right, he played too about. passive. He, well, he, he was impatient and the... passive. Yeah, he he doesn't have his clay legs under him. and I, Basically, just... he played like shit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're not wrong, but I just think I know, but see, I, I think that's too simple. I think you are right when you say he doesn't have his clay legs under him, but to extrapolate that to say he's not a clay player, I don't think I agree with that. Okay, yeah, maybe, maybe that's too far to say. I, I really just feel like I was watching him try to play a hard court game on the clay, which obviously is not going to work. I mean, but in his match against Istamin, he was moving the ball well, taking time yeah. away from Istamin. So, I mean, it, it, it like you said earlier, I, it, didn't, it may have sounded like I was trying to take away from Munar. I'm not. He played a perfect match. He did everything he needed to do to stay competitive uh, throughout the course of this match. And, of course, he got he raced out to an early break lead on Zverev in that first set. Zverev broke back, but just played a terrible tiebreaker. And, you know, when you can get a set like that under your belt, two out of three, you're halfway there. Yeah, agreed. And and look, Munar has had a pretty solid uh, 2019 so far. I mean, he's he's made a couple quarterfinals in Cordoba. He made one in Buenos Aires. He made one in Rio where he lost to FAA, you know, in a, in a good match. So uh, he's a guy on the clay that you're going to want to watch out for in those early rounds, not someone that you want to, you know, see yourself facing. But let's talk about the other big second round match from this tournament, and that is the Joe Willie Sanga versus Kyle Edmonds. 7-6-6-3 win for my boy Joe Willie. I know you had a chance to watch this one, so just give me your initial thoughts. Well, this was a big hitters match, you know, through and through. There's three breaks of serve in the match. Both guy breaks, uh, both guys break one time in the first. Sanga gets that break in the second and holds on to it. There's a lot of big first strike tennis. Neither of these guys are particularly proficient at defense on the clay. Now that's not to say Sanga's not a better mover than someone his size should be on the surface, because obviously a guy that big to move around the way he does, hit passing shots when on the run, that's a special thing. But at this point in his career, he's not doing that every point. And to Kyle Edmonds' credit, you know, when he can set on a first forehand, you're in trouble. That's the reason he's a top 20 player. But, you know, for Sanga, he attacked the Edmund backhand. And even on a hard court, when Edmund can set his feet, his backhand's, you know, far from a, a top 50 backhand on the ATP tour. And now you throw in the clay to that as well. When he's stretched, he's misfooted. Sometimes he's slicing. 
he made Edmund uncomfortable, and when the margins are as thin as they were, look, it's a 7-6-6-3 match. Tsonga wins eight more total points than Edmund. It's the little things that make a difference. So it's not as though Edmund couldn't have won this match. Tsonga just got that extra break. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Tsonga played a stronger match. I'm not necessarily going to agree sure, that it could sure. have gone either way. Um the, the thing that, again, that I'm going to bring up, and, and we're going to you know talk about this a little bit more in depth as we go through Houston, uh, I think similarly that I, what I was saying was Zverev, I think Edmund was playing a hardcourt game. I, I think, you know, generally Edmund, I think, is a hardcourt player. Like, I, I think the way that he constructs points, it, I mean, a lot of these guys, look, we're, we're in the first couple tournaments of the clay court season aren't quite ready and I think Songa of course you know born on the clay has a great game to change up pace hit the slices hit the drop shots you know really allows him to kind of more you know seamlessly move into the clay court season but you also got to look at the statistics here he served 73 73% of his first serves he won 84% of those first serve points so that's just you know a, a really good way to make sure that you're staying comfortable on your serve and then you can attack the returns can I to even uh, add on to that point? You look at the difference I mentioned earlier. Songa won eight more total points for Edmund. He only made fifty five percent of his first yeah. serves, but he won seventy eight percent of those first serve points. As I mentioned, they were both holding serve easily. You look at the margin there. Songa won thirty seven points on his first serve. Edmund won twenty eight. That's a nine point spread. So you know Edmund makes a couple more first serves, doesn't allow Songa to hit an aggressive return. That's why yes, you are you are one hundred percent correct. Songa played well enough uh there's a bit of a difference he definitely deserved to win this match but that's why i said earlier edmund makes three more four more first serves you know their first set tiebreaker was an eight six decision he was right in this match agreed and and look you know songa is pretty fresh off his injury and coming back and he's he's had some success this year he he does get the w in montpellier in france earlier in, in february and you know of course not the the best performance in Miami, but I think he's starting to get back on his feet. Alex, predictions for Sanga in the French Open? I mean, first of all, let's let's hope he stays healthy. We all know he's had injury concerns. I think there's a blood clot issue or something related to that, mm-hmm. why he wasn't able to travel to Miami and Indian Wells. So assuming he's able to stay healthy, third or fourth round. It just depends on his draw. What if he draws a seed in the first round, you know, a Djokovic or a Nadal, because he's going to come in unseeded, and that's something you have to think about. So it's tough to say without knowing his draw. He's certainly capable of making a, you know, winning a couple matches there if the draw breaks right, but I don't see him making it past the fourth round. No quarterfinals, in my opinion. Just physically. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's tough. I mean, uh, he's I don't know. skinny I, right now. He looks skinny. Yeah. But is it a skinny fit or is it just no, like fit fit? But definitely he's he's lost weight in this process. And that's, you, you know, three out of five. How does he hold up? Who knows? <sighs> yeah, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and say I think he's making a quarterfinal. I think he's going <laughs> to shock some people. I, I agreed. I think as you get into that second week, fitness is going to be tough. He hasn't done that in a bit. But he's so good on the clay and, and he looks he looks fit right now. I agree. So why? Why I can't scoff on you because you went on that whole Burditch tangent pre-Australian Open, and that's like the one thing you got right. Dude, I'm telling you, they've got fire in their eyes when they're oh fresh God. off of injury. Right. They want to be a, they want to be back out there. They want to prove everyone wrong. I don't know. I, I think we could easily see it, but but that's enough of Marrakesh. Wait, I mean, can I were... throw one more quick Marrakesh note? Sure. 
Okay, Yuri Vesely, former world junior yeah. number one, 6'6", lefty, not exactly handsome, but play, doesn't exactly <laughs> play a pretty game either. Big serves, big ground strokes, kind of moves forward. Kind of ugly forehand, kind of very wristy. But he beats Fognini first round. We all know Fognini has not had a good year so far, so take that one with a grain of salt. But follows it up with a 3-4 and four win over Londero. Now that that's not a you know, the most notable name, but still just whenever you can follow up an upset with a win, that's big for him. Vesely had fallen out of the top 100. You get quarterfinal points here. He's got a very winnable match against Pablo and Andahar in the next round. Now, Andahar has also been playing well, but, you know, still, you, if you're Yuri Vesely and you're drawing it up, you'd rather play Andahar than Kohlschreiber, at least on paper. So it's nice to just, yeah. uh, another guy, he's not old. He's what, 24? maybe the, at, at mm-hmm. most. So just take notice. There really is a shift going on. Agreed. And and since you brought up that result, I'll bring up a few of the other ones just from this tournament. Benoit Pair takes out Pierre Huzier-Bear 4-2. That's a good win for Benoit, who who looks like he's playing some solid tennis. Uh, Lorenzo Sinego takes out Robin Hassa. Taro Daniel takes out Messieres. And Simone takes out Andrazi. So, you know, again, not your strongest ATP 250. I think this is a really good chance for Sanga to potentially get through this tournament, get a nice W under his belt, and get some confidence going into Monte Carlo. But let's move on to Houston, where we had a you know American-filled tournament, and I think we've only got one left. So uh, that that's our boy Sam Query, and, and we will talk about this. I'll, I want to talk about a few of the matches before we get into it because. I think there needs to to be a discussion, unless you want to have it now on, on American. No, I'm so happy you said that. Can we get the one big non-American match out of the way, and then we can do our whole spiel on that? Sure. All right. The the match I would like to talk about first the, is Christian, Christian Guerin. Yes. So the Christian Guerin Jeremy Shardy match. This is a match that Christian Guerin wins three six seven six seven six in a thriller. He saves five match points in this match, and you know, gotta give credit to him. He played fantastic you know it's funny because you were mentioning the clay and how it looked like dirt in Houston and there were quite a few shanks in this match so I think you know you might be right that it's not the same quality that you're getting in Marrakech but uh Alex take take us through what you saw here first question I have for you Max Rothman how old is Christian Guerin take a guess Oh, I I know how old Christian Guerin is. <laughs> May thirtieth, nineteen ninety six. He is younger than both of us. And you just you know, name three people who are prominent in tennis media who've been like, you know, who's a young guy you shouldn't be missing? That Christian, Christian Guerin. Guerin. He's only twenty two, yeah. but you know, you look at it right now. Highest ranking. He's reached it. He's at number sixty seven in the ATP. That is a career. He's on pace to get there next week. That will be a career high. You talk about him on the clay. This is a guy who, throughout his career, you date back to the juniors, where he won the twenty thirteen Junior French Open in singles. You look at his professional career. He's made eighteen career finals, including Futures Challenge and ATP level, 17 have been, of them have been on clay. This is a surface this guy is ready to play. So you, you we mentioned earlier Edmonds, you're, they're playing a hard court style. I say this lovingly, I don't really know what you mean, but you talk about Christian Guerin, this is a guy who is ready for the clay, and you can just tell by watching him, he is so comfortable, even when they're playing on grounded rocks. Well, I think you do know what I mean. I, yeah, I think I'm there's just a, giving I, you a hard time. Yeah, okay, fine. 
Uh, well, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, Christian Guerin this year has played more clay court tournaments than hard court tournaments. You know, he makes the final of Sao Paulo uh, and loses to Guido Pea in that tournament, and and he's had some success already on the clay. And and like you said, you know, he plays you know a really solid clay court style game. But looking at the statistics in this match, you know. I think something that we've been seeing and I like to comment on is the double faults. Shardy with 13 double falls only serves 51% on his first serve uh, compared to Garen who wins 70% of his first serves making 65% of them. So, you know, I think that makes a huge difference when, especially when you have two tiebreak sets, you got to be making those first serves, giving yourself the advantages during the tiebreakers and, and not giving away those free points. I mean, Jeremy Shardy has had it. I don't want to say disaster, but he has not had a good 2019. He got a couple wins in Miami, making the round of 32 before losing to George. He beat Simone and Jerry there, so obviously that's a way to start building your confidence. But before that, first-round loss of the Phoenix Challenger to Lorenzo Sinego, who's number 107 in the world, but still, three-set loss there. Loses to Giron at Indian Wells, 6-6. Six and six. First round in Marseille, 6-6 uh, six and six to Berrettini. First round in Rotterdam, 6-2 and two to Medvedev. I mean, the wins and few are few and far between for him right now. Now, that being said, Christian Guerin, as I mentioned, this guy knows how to play on clay. He changes directions, I think, so beautifully with his forehand. And it's just, it's not that it's overwhelming with firepower. It's really not. But it's just, he knows what he wants to do. He doesn't want you to get in a rhythm footwork-wise. He's going to go two cross, one line, just to keep you moving. And then he'll throw a ball behind you. And just, he has his pattern set. I think his serve, it's it's it kind of looks... It, no, it looks like Warinka's, right? The way he draws his yeah. feet up and then kind of slingshots yeah. his arm. I see that. And so it's sneaky powerful. You know, his second serve is not, and I think Shardy was able to capitalize and kind of tee off on those To You look at the but stats. But see, that's Garen where I, I think he didn't do it enough. Like, I, I think for he should have been doing it more, yes. Here's the thing. It, I mean, the margins in this match, 3-6-7-6-7-6, Shardy thin. was right there. Yeah, they're thin. And you look at the point spread, Garen 132, Shardy 131, yes. Now, maybe he takes two more chances on returns, and you're absolutely right. But to Garen's credit, 65% of his first serves go in versus Shardy's 51%. We're looking for little margins. The nine free points you mentioned in terms of the double fault spread is one thing, but the amount of first serves made you know, uh, in this match, even though the disparity in percentage is 14%, Garen makes 79 first serves, Shardy makes 73 first serves. Sometimes it's as little as that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, when you're when you're looking at the statistics here, it kind of shows you that, you know, all it takes is a few points here or there. This but is I, a, I, can I ask one more on this and then I promise straight Americans? Sure. Garen Munar, both youngish, both clay proficient, both capable of making a third round at the French. I think Munar over Garen, but but yes, they're but, they're uh, they're both guys that if you are seeing them in a first, second round of the French, you are nervous. You're like, you are, you are, yeah, you're like, yeah. this is going to be tough. You're, you're sitting there and you're saying, wow, I'm going to have to work my ass off mm-hmm. in this match to mm-hmm. play smart. I, I need to make sure that I'm not making stupid errors here and there. I mean, it, you just, you got to know that you're going to have to play your game and, and not, you're, you have to beat them. They're not going to beat you. You have to beat them. 
I would love to see Munar draw with Zverev because I just think rematch-wise that would give Zverev the extra boost, but I would hate to see Christian Garin wind up a first or second round matchup for my boy Alex Zverev. <laughs> Your boy Alex Zverev. You like how I slide get, that in? Get out of here. <laughs> well, well, he's the new Murray, right? Because everyone's like, when are you going to win a slam? So I'm ready to hop on that bandwagon. Oh, uh, yeah. Who who was it in our Slack channel that was like, he's never going to win a slam? Dude. You know who it was. Think hard. Was ca- <laughs> no, Captain like, Cliche. Don't say don't, the name, but you know. No, who. I know. I know. I don't. I don't want to <laughs> call him out on the. We pod. love you, Captain Cliche. Yes, we do. But uh, looking forward in this tournament, I, I want to get to the Americans, and, and we will here. So Christian Garin's third round match will be against Henry Laxanen, who beats Ryan Harrison six four seven five, and this was disappointing. Well, for a few reasons. One. We, I think, both said that Harrison was going to lose to Karlovich in our pre-Houston pod. So, uh, you know, we were, you know, hey, great shots at us. We were both wrong there. Uh, But Harrison played a fantastic match against Karlovich. Returned really well, played really smart, you know, did not miss a lot of balls. And then he, you know, goes and plays Henry and just does absolutely the opposite. He hits 49% of his first serves. He only wins 36% of his second serves. And this is the most outrageous part of this match. There were a combined 23 breakpoint opportunities. That is outrageous. I mean, Ryan only had eight compared to Henry Laxon's 15. But that's, I mean, look, Harrison's a guy that relies on his serve. His serve and his forehand and to be making less than half of your first serves and there, to, for there to be 15 break opportunities on you, uh, that's just you're, – you're not going to win the match. If I were to give a you know, narrative of this, it would be Harrison's like, here, Henry, you take this match. But then Henry throwing in 47, <laughs> 47% of his first serves, you know, giving up eight break points, was like, no, 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 Ryan, you win this match. But then <laughs> Ryan was like, no, 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 no wait. I'm going to try and hit drop shots. I'm going to spray my forehand. Please, Henry, you take this match. And then Henry was like, you know what? Fine. Like, I want to play Garen. I'm in the mood to get a good workout in because I want to get a good Houston barbecue meal in. And I know I have to sweat before I do that. And that would be all I have to say about this match because Ryan Harrison just – he didn't play well. Well, well, look, if I'm a betting man, I'm excited to bet on Garen in the third round because – I don't think there's any chance Laxanen wins this match. I mean, again, e- even more disappointing. You're gonna what? You wanna you wanna debate well, me on thing. that one? Laxanen in this match, particularly against Harrison, it's not like Harrison is not a physical player. He certainly is. Whenever he saw slice, he moved forward. And you know, both Harrison Munar love to run around that backhand, seek out the forehand. Uh, I think Munar does a better job of moving around his forehand on the clay. But Laxton's a guy who will tee off, who will try and take the ball away from you. And you know, if Munar's feeling big after his win over Zverev, Laxton puts some pressure on him. There's a recipe for an upset there, so I don't think it's a sure thing. But I mean, if he serves like he did today, yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, like I said, if I'm a betting man, I'm going on Garen. But you were great in you Vegas, know, so sure. Yeah, let's let's keep the hot streak going. But it, the last thing I wanted to bring up before we just talk about the Americans in general is, you know, Garen had five first round losses going into this match. I mean, Garen or Laxanen? Excuse me. Yeah, did I just say Garen? Laxanen yeah. had five first round. Give me a little losses rewind, Westoff, please. Yeah, please, Westoff. Yeah. There, there were five first-round losses for him 
previous, you know, prior to this match. And if you're Ryan Harrison, you gotta be thinking this is an opportunity and it's just, it's a bummer. We we've time after time wanted to see him break through and he hasn't been able to, but maybe that's where we move on to the rest of the Americans because the rest of the Americans were also not able to break through. We had Stevie losing first round, Bradley <laughs> Klon lost first round, Opelka loses first round, and we will break down the Opelka rude match. Kudla loses first round to Tomic, Fritz loses first round to Granolers, and then, you know, Query takes down for Tangelo, so, you know, you at least get one American there. Ruben loses first round, and Tennis Sandgren loses to Tipsarevich, and before I... Before I move on, well, I also, Mackie loses to Laxenden. So we had a lot of Americans losing in the first round. But quick little fun fact on Janko Tipsarevich. He is the lowest ranked quarterfinalist on record since 1979. <laughs> he breaks a U.S. clay record of number 352, Fernando Gonzalez, who won a 2000 title Gonzo. in Orlando. I know. Oh, I miss those forehands. Um <laughs> And he also breaks a Houston only record of number 349, Tommy Haas, who won the 2004 title at Westside. So, I mean, ridiculous. Janko has been making a little bit of a, a comeback, you know, into the into the tour. He's he's won some matches this year, but just ridiculous. So, what I want to talk about here, Alex, there was a tennis.com article written about. Americans and the clay and, and you know they talked about how Roland Garros wants to bring more clay tennis to America uh, and and how it you know it is just difficult you know one because keeping up a clay court is just it's tough um, and and there was even something in the article talking about how one of the ways in which it was proposed to to get more clay courts into America is you know with government funding and uh, <laughs> yeah it's yeah exactly laughable because we know that's never going to happen. My question to you, Alex, how do we start changing the young American style of play? How do we start getting them into clay court tennis more so that we can you know, be more successful in the pros? Because I, I truly do think that that is something that is hindering a lot of American tennis players' potential on the tour. It's a loaded question, and I don't think you or I are particularly experienced enough to come up with a definitive answer. I feel like it's important we preface it with that. That being sure. said, we can both speculate, and we spoke earlier of the Club Tennis Nationals. We went down to the national campus in Orlando. We saw, you know, there's 50 hard courts, but there's also 50 hard true courts. They're playing on the green clay. They are trying to emphasize it more. Now you look at, there's a generation of Americans where point construction, uh, that, that sort of point development, working angles, using your ground strokes, emphasis from physicality at the baseline, was not what they were taught uh, as they're growing up because they didn't have that sort of access. So I think the USDA is aware of this problem and they are trying uh, to change the style. That being said, look, half the country you're playing indoors half the year, and that's just an insurmountable challenge. And indoor clay courts, that's a monster in itself. It's hard enough to keep a club going when you've got, you know, five courts now you're asking to do five indoor clay courts and you think you're going to sustain that that's hard enough you know in southeast michigan good luck and it's just (laughs) like that's so that's one thing that being said it's an emphasis on point construction it's an emphasis on physicality as i mentioned and sorry to repeat myself it's an emphasis on making sure you spend a training block in the off season even though you want to get ready for the hard courts off australia well, you know, you've got all of this December. Maybe you spend the second week on clay just because. It's the little things. And, again, 
we're not smart. Uh, we're not smart enough. Oh, I don't know if we're not smart enough. I'm sure we could comprehend something, but I don't think we're experienced enough in terms of training as to how to combat it immediately. But in terms of the larger approach, I think the USTA ha- is attempting to do it at the highest level with the national campus. Now, doing it locally will always be a problem. Agreed. And, you know, I, I wanted to bring up that point of, you know, training and can we take young American players and try and learn how to construct points in, in a way that is more similar to the clay court? Because at, at least personally, when I grew up, I remember learning how to hit, you know, big heavy inside outs and then coming in shortening up points you know you know big down the line shots it, i think that's it, why you suck and and that is not why i <laughs> suck but i i think that is something that i saw in a lot of drills of you know in different training camps and and places that i went to across southern california it just it was a it was a quicker style of game big serves big forehands uh, and I think you see that in our players. I mean, look at Query, look at Fritz, look at Stevie. I mean, I think Stevie of of them might have the maybe That's why the closest. Houston back to back. Yeah, because right. he moves to the best. His slice on the clay is interesting. He's got the he slice. Can, he can snap you off the court with a kick serve, open it up for himself, hit the big forehand. I mean, we've seen Query this week do that same thing. Opelka loses in three sets. He could open up a little bit of court for himself. Fritz can do it occasionally. So it's not to say it doesn't work, but yeah, the proficiency, the they're not Casper Rudd. They're not changing directions, looking to really not pulling the trigger until they have opened themselves the entirety of the court. And that's you're, not to say that they don't do it, but it's just clearly they're not as comfortable. I mean, look at how many first-round losses we had here, and and that's maybe where we move on. Well, last right. thing, and I'm not going to violate the privilege of our conversation, but Jonathan Kelly, at Joe Kelly underscore tennis, a guy Max and I are both very, very fond of, has been on a bit of a tennis hiatus, came out real quick briefly after Madison Keys won in Charleston, and then he has been texting me this week about some of the Houston results. Let's just say he has not regretted his hibernation decision. <laughs> he, I'm, I'm sure he, he came out, saw the results, and was like, wow, this is horrible. I am going to refrain from going on Twitter. And well, Can we talk about something quiet. not horrible real quick? In terms of these Americans on clay? So <laughs> Opel- Which is we, what? <laughs> we said we were going to break it down. Opelka lost his match 4-6-6-4-6-4, but he did some things well. Again, for a person, just a human his size, to move even semi-competently on that Houston surface, it was promising. The way he's able, yeah, you know, 16 aces, he only makes 59% of his first serves, but he wins 83% of that of those points. He found sometimes to sneak in uh, serve and volley. I don't think he's comfortable returning on the surface yet, but that's its own monster. There are promising things just because of the way Riley Opelka's game allows him to dominate any match that I think can translate to him. And it's why, again, we've talked about these tiers of next-gen players. I keep being convinced more and more he may have the highest upside of all of the young americans yeah i mean we we can get into a whole american i just did with ben rothenberg yeah check it out great shot podcast (laughs) hey great shot uh (laughs) i I don't want to get into that here but i I agree i I think he has a lot of promise he did move pretty well in this match uh but i I think for again a guy that relies on his serve you got to be serving over 59 percent and i i think you know yes i'm being a little harsh because 59 percent isn't terrible but you know it's it's not good enough for a guy whose serve is you know the crux of his game. Last Houston thought, or at least on this match, what do you think of Rude? 
I think Rude is a great player. I mean, uh, he's another I, talented young junior 20. Who's coming through. He's 20. Yeah, he just turned 20. I mean, so I think it's fair. And again, I, I'm sorry to repeat topics we talked about in the Great Shot podcast. Zverev, Tsitsipas, probably FAA have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. But then you look at, and I define them, tier two, tier three. There are about 30 players who I could make the case they could be top 20 one day, you know, for sure top 50. It's just, I see where the next generation of players is. I, I've now located them, I'm aware of them, and I will be monitoring them. Yes, I think that we're slowly bringing them up in all these mini breaks, and we're seeing so, who they are. I'm so fucking done with like the Jordan Thompsons and like the Paolo Lorenzis of the world. Like, give me Kesmenovich and Rude in as many second round quarterfinals of two fifties as possible. Well, we we would. Uh, first of all, yes, agreed. I want I want all these young guys in quarters and semis and, and wherever. But and, and we will talk about coaching in a little bit. But I want to. I just thought this was an interesting thing. Casper uh, is coached by his father, Christian Rude, who was a former player, high career high singles ranking of thirty nine. He was the highest ranked. Excuse me. He is the highest ranked Norwegian male player ever on tour. So I think Casper uh, is trying to give his dad a run for his money and, and kind of fill in his shoes there. But uh, I, that is a little precursor to what we will end this podcast with some coaching talk. But let's move on to one other match. Excuse me, two other matches that we wanted to bring up from this tournament. Well, actually, we, we wow, we've talked about them. We've talked about all the matches that we really wanted to get well, to. Is there anything uh, else you, you want to bring up besides Query? Because I do want to talk about Query. No, that's the last one. I agree. Let's okay. rock and roll. So Query takes down for Tangelo, and we don't have to get into that match. The only thing I want to bring up, he served 90% against well, he Tangelo. Won, he won today, too. I, I don't remember who I know. played exactly. No, no, Garcia so, Lopez? So, Yes, he beats Garcia Lopez four and three, and I, I just had to bring up the Fratangelo because ninety percent first serves is gross. And in an interview after this match, and, and this is this is interesting because we've been talking about trying to adapt your game to the clay and getting ready for that. He's pretty much taken the the opposite approach. He is going to hit big returns, big serves, big forehands, and he said that that he thinks is the key to his success moving forward, that he has to continue to play an aggressive style of gameplay even on the clay. So I'm curious what you think about him deciding to do that you know, even on, on the clay court. I mean, Sam lost first round Miami. He lost second round Indian Wells. He did not do well. Or he made, sorry, round of 16 Acapulco. Uh, he just made semifinal of New York Open, but he just hasn't been that confident uh, since he made his big runs at Wimbledon he said that. Uh, in 2017. Yeah, and he's very aware of that. And I think for him, it was the opposite. It was, let me double down on the things I'm good at. Let me just do the things I'm comfortable on the court doing. And to his credit, it's working right now. Now, that's not to say, you know, you're playing three out of five against Nadal or Djokovic and it's going to work out the same because the level of players he's playing here in Houston, you know, not quite there. Bjorn Fertangelo, though he played a great first set against Djokovic and Indian Wells, is no Novak Djokovic. You know, Garcia Lopez is not Rafa Nadal. Uh, but still, query for him to find any sort of confidence at this point of the season uh, at playing on the clay, that's what matters. And so to his credit, you know, it's it's been great to see him you know, firing on all cylinders. Well, look, he is our last American left in Houston. And 
look, I know, which is just terrible. And and looking at the rest of this draw, I mean, you've got Garen Laxanen. He's playing Tipsarevich next round. You have Granolers and Rood, and then Galan plays the winner of Geraldo and Thompson. And so I think Geraldo I mean, won, but let me, let me look at that. Oh, uh, well, that that is very possible. Not showing on the ATP site as of now, but I mean. As we said before we started this. Oh, nope. Five all we... in the third. Thompson up love 30 about to break. Well, there we go. Uh, but this doesn't seem like a 250 uh, quarterfinal, you know, draw to me. But this is, again, like for Sanga, great opportunity. Ma, my friend. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, my friend. Uh... Good opportunity for Query to get a W under his belt, get some more confidence, and lead him into Monte Carlo. But as I said... Sorry, I, I didn't mean bring... Manish Mount. I meant Dianu. Yeah, that's that's what I was that's looking for. That's what I was for. looking for. Apologies. For for all of our non-Jewish friends, we, we had a... Don't worry a, about a, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to get into it. Uh, but the last thing that, as I said, you know, with the, the Christian Rude thing, uh, I just wanted to bring up, which was interesting, is uh, coaching. And I, I wanted to ask you this because I know you've had a fond experience with some of your coaches, and, and sure. I have too. We've seen a lot of coaching changes on the tour this year, and there's been a few articles recently talking about it. I mean, looking at the WTA, of course, you know, Osaka famously has has left her coach, Sasha Bajan. Stevens has left her coach. Kerber has left her coach. Venus Williams has left her coach. Simona Halep has left her coach. And then we just heard that Dennis Shapovalov has split with his previous coach to go back with his— Wozniacki as well. And Shapo is now going back to his junior coach. So I'm curious, Alex, you know, a lot of these players are doing it from, you know, apparently a perspective of money and how the WTA is, is growing. And that's at least how it's, you know, framed in these articles. Do you truly think that that's what's driving these players to split from their coaches? No, and I think there are a couple of extenuating circumstances. In particular, you mentioned Halep. You know, for her, it's not that her and Darren Cahill weren't getting along or weren't achieving success. It was simply Cahill needed to step away, spend more time with his family, focus on his other career stuff. And that's totally acceptable. They had both done what they wanted to do together. And so when it's a split like that, so amicable, you're totally, you know, totally different, right? The other thing, you, you look at it as you mentioned, no, I, I don't think it's money. There's so many different styles. Federer goes coachless. Milos Raonic seems like tries a new coach every two months. Some well, if you're Federer, just... you're allowed to go coachless. <laughs> um, yeah, but or Nadal, who's straight Uncle Tony. Or Uncle looks Tony. At, no, no, who's, who's he have in the box now? Former good player, Moya, Carlos Moya. Yep. And it's things like that, you know, you want to experience. Yvonne Lendl goes from Murray, then he uh, jumps around, then he comes back to Murray, then he leaves again. It's just, I think he's with Zverev now. Yeah, there's a... I think it's fine. Here's many perspectives as you want. If you as a player are uncomfortable with your coaching situation, you think a new perspective, hell, Alex Gruskin, pleasure to meet you. I'm happy to offer perspectives. We try and do it every day on this mini break podcast. Like more credit to you. I think it's fine. Now, of course, there gets to a point where there's a line and it can get overwhelming. But if you're not comfortable, you know, find the change that's right for you. Good for these players. It's It speaks to the fact that they're comfortable doing that. I, I think my... Uh, you know, fair. First of all, I'm gonna say fair enough. I I agree with you to an extent, but I think there I have a problem with players who are leaving after success. I I don't know what you, you give me that face, but well, look, I have a when a coach I have is a doing something with the pr- right for you, you you shouldn't be 
you know, sitting there and saying, this isn't good enough and I'm getting rid of you. And sure, if you want another perspective, go ask. You don't boot your coach after winning two Grand Slams. And I know this is specifically Osaka, but some of these other players, I mean, Venus has been playing some good tennis. And I think it is, you know, first of all, disrespectful. And I think it's hurt. It's going to hurt them in the long run. I mean, ultimately it is their decision, but I think that's a ridiculous thing to do if you're having success to boot the coach that you're having that success with. So I have a problem with the premise, I suppose, of the articles, and I haven't read them to apologize to any of the writers. Kale Hammond represents Tennis.com. I'm quite fond of him, so I understand <laughs> they must be a well-run website. But the nice idea that money is the is – the, yeah, of course, hey, we're looking for sponsors always. And did I mention Venus Williams playing world team tennis, which you can hear more about in our Crack Interviews podcast with Carlos Silva. Um, but I just – if the idea that money is driving these decisions, that's crazy. Like, I, I really hope that's not true. I'm sure these people have done reporting, but I just can't imagine that being the case. Now, if it is, as you as you mentioned, that's an asinine choice by the player. Like, I don't know what they're thinking. That being said, I will continue to stick with. If you're uncomfortable with your coaching, get rid of it because you cannot have distractions off of the court especially given on-court coaching now being a part of the WTA tour you need someone you're comfortable with in your box and if that means you know a little bit of change fine do what you have to do to get comfortable now as you mentioned if it's happening every month maybe that speaks more about the player than it does about the coaching situation maybe there's something toxic else going on in that situation that we're not uh, focusing on but uh, Players can do what they want. Like, who am I to say if you need a new coach, go for it? Part part of me had this little voice in my head that was thinking, "What if because they're now recording the <laughs> coaching on court that something was said between some of these coaches and the players that they they don't want getting out into the media, and so they're just like, you know, what, screw it, firing the coach, can't handle that, that don't want that, you know, uh, all over the Twitter feed." We did a uh, – Jamie once was telling me he did a mock thing of talking to Kyrgios before a match, and he was kind of just like, so, uh, so Nick, uh, you going to try today? Like, what are we thinking? And, like, yeah, I wonder what some of these co- – like, I would just love that experience to go on the court and talk. I'd be like, so what's up? Like, how are you? Come on, just show me a smile. Like, I just need a smile out of you. Don't worry about anything else for a second. Just show me a smile. And then if you need like, to go out there and hit a tweener to get that smile. Fine. See, that I wouldn't say. Like, if you want to hate oh, anyone right now, hate me. Because clearly, if they're in a losing situation, it's poor coaching. This is my fault for putting you in a bad position. Um, but they're just, it's just such a fun dynamic. I mean, what? You're going to go down to Simona Halep and be like, hey, Simona, you know what you need to do? Chase down more balls. Because you don't do that enough right now. You no, don't try Sim- enough. Simona, you won a Grand Slam, but... I just – I don't think you're going for enough forehands down the line. I mean, that's from our perspective. Now, Darren Cahill could say, hey, look for the forehand down the line more because she's cheating over and that's a valid thing. But, yeah, I just – whoever you're comfortable going through that exchange with, with all of the raw emotion of a sideline and just a match and everything, that's who you should have in your box. The rest, erroneous. Yes, agreed. And, and the fact that it could be – you know the article is attributing this to money. I think is ridiculous. But if there is any silver lining here, it's that the WTA is getting more coverage. Money, you know, money, money, money. The money is increasing for the WTA, which has been you know, a complaint in the past. And I know Alex is losing his mind because he's doing some weird voices over there. So Isn't that I'm gonna CSI Miami. 
There's money. Bow, bow, bow. I'm not a CSI guy, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> but considering that you're you're talking about CSI now, I'm just going to turn this over to you before we end this podcast because I know you did want to talk about just a few college matches to look forward to uh, in, in the coming weeks. Well, I know the SEC is pretty much wrapped up, but there's a nice encounter between uh, Texas A&M and Mississippi State, two teams kind of at different points in their trajectory. Mississippi State this year, their fourth year, their fantastic four, all seniors. It's kind of the culmination of that point. Texas A&M, their younger team, hungry team. You know, they've got, I think, freshmen playing five and six, but they've worked their way up to the top ten, and there are a lot of seeding implications. Who's going to be in that top eight, get to host a super regional So that's a fun match to watch. Now, both teams, you know, Florida's already clinched the regular season SEC, so they're not going to be the number one seeds in the tournament. But to get that number two seed, uh, get yourself another win before it becomes selection time, so important. Similar to that selection note, Virginia versus UNC this weekend. You know I'm always watching my Cavaliers. Uh, The Who's no longer just a tennis school after getting that basketball national title, but a big match for them against the Tar Heels. Huge seeding implications on the line as well. Uh, You want to rack up those wins because it's what your top seven wins, maybe your top nine wins count to seeding. And so uh, for both teams, you know, North Carolina's had a topsy-turvy ACC season. They're finally starting to get healthy, figure out what to do in the doubles lineup. And as I mentioned again with the world team thing, I'm all about team tennis this week. So go watch that college tennis. It's going to be a ton of fun. And the live streams have gotten better and better. Periscope, shout out to you. You finally learned what to do with – or not Periscope. uh, I'm seeing the little thing. Max, what's it called? Well, there's PlaySite. PlaySite, not Periscope. Thank you. PlaySite. The little P. I recognize the little P, but I I didn't remember if it was Periscope or PlaySite. PlaySite. Sorry. I I have a really dirty joke I want to make, but – I'm not going to do it because this is a tennis podcast and <laughs> and that would be inappropriate. Um, but you know, uh, thank you for the college update. You know, also you reminded me earlier that Ojai is coming up in a few weeks and, and I am hoping to get out there. So I will do my best to get you guys live coverage uh, from Ojai. But Alex, we, we've covered a lot today. Any Any last words before we wrap it up? Max mentioned it at the top of the show. If you want to get yourself a chance to win some free is. Cracked Rackets gear, go put a, a like, a rating, a subscription for the Mini Break podcast. Five stars only. Someone did the competition, left us a four star. We're a four star? Come on, I know. Man. I think it was a slip of the finger, but we have debated whether we should disqualify him or not. Uh, so go put that. I don't actually know if it was a him or a her. I apologize for using that. But go do those subscriptions. Go put those reviews down leave your name email twitter we don't care what it is we will find you put yourself in this competition because i promise you will like the gear max rothman and co have come up with well thank you we will wrap it up there as always we need to give a special shout out to our super producers max fliegner and daniel westhoff who has a of a job to do in editing this podcast but one last time for my super co-host alexander scott gruskin for the entire team at cracked rackets i am your host max rothman and alex what do we say Devastated Michigan club tennis loss. Devastated Michigan women's tennis loss 4-3 to Florida. But it is almost the weekend time, so I am happy to tell you, Max Rothman, that's the break. There it is, and we'll see you next week. Screw some of you, Max.